Episode 16, The Retrograde Approach, Radiation Safety. Welcome to The Retrograde Approach. My name is Dr. Yogi Sansukumaran. And it's my pleasure and privilege to have Dr. Sam Farrow on the podcast. Good afternoon, Sam. Tibial Hunter. Oh, Yogi, that introduction is far, far too exuberant for uh, this time of the evening. I'm a, I'm a busy vascular surgeon. I don't time. I don't have time to have fun and I, I'm look. You know, uh, yeah. You you are you are definitely a busy uh, vascular surgeon. That's for sure. But I'm trying to enjoy. Uh, you guys lived a good life up in Queensland, that's for sure. We got we got a bit more freedom at the moment, I guess, uh, with lockdown and restrictions sort of settling. But we we really are thinking of our colleagues in New South Wales and Victoria. But also, um, just to sort of uh, on a slightly serious note, we do empathise with um, uh, the various um, fellowship candidates around the country who have unfortunately heard in the last few days that. Um, their sitting has been cancelled for this year, which has mm. been no small uh, change to their uh, trajectory for the year. And so we do feel for them and we do understand. But um, Sam, I think you would agree that they've got to keep the fa- the fire burning. Yeah. Whilst they, they should take a little bit of time away, uh, hopefully we can return back to an exam schedule in the new year. Yeah, I think uh, Yogi, when our exam was cancelled last year, we took uh, probably a month or two off just to. Uh, unwind and um, relax a bit and then get back into study. So I think, you know, long story short, the exam will happen at some point, but um, exam fatigue was a real factor for us So and study fatigue. So stay strong, have a break, and um, in due course, get back into it. Absolutely. And uh, together, the two of us plus uh, colleagues from around the country, uh, I most definitely empathise with um, the difficulties, not only that the exam candidates are going through, but also the examiners and the challenges that they face as they aim to put through uh, as many candidates uh, in the fellowship exam. So mm. stay strong. Um, mm-hmm. so, saying that, though, this this episode is definitely one that's relevant to the tibial hunter, um, <laughs> Dr. Farah, um, as he does his complex endovascular reconstruction uh, at whatever centre he's able to do so. Um, today we'll be going through the nuances of radiation safety. And Sam, this is an important area of discussion. Um, mm. Apart from the considerations that we put into in terms of operative planning and procedure selection for patients, our responsibility in the hybrid operating environment or the angio lab means that we also have to take into account the exposure that we put our colleagues, whether they are our registrars, uh, our nursing colleagues, our radiographers and anaesthetists when it comes to x-ray exposure and ensuring not only is this, they've got the appropriate gear on in the operating theatre, but also that we take into account um, the exposure during the case itself. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, yeah, I guess the other side of it is, Yogi, that... um... You know, some staff members may come and go, but we're going to have a long career of doing this. And I think it's, you know, fair enough or realistic enough to say that the breadth of endovascular procedures will probably only increase in time. And so will our radiation exposure. So it's important for everyone um, who's a vascular surgeon and works with the vascular field, uh, takes it quite seriously as um, a lifetime exposure to radiation needs to be carefully thought about and considered. Yeah, most definitely. And... Um, you know, when you talk to colleagues who um, really trained in the year of open surgery, um, the challenges that we meet today with both endovascular and hybrid procedures are ones that they perhaps did not encounter in their initial training. Um, and definitely this is a reflection of technology and its advancement. Mm-hmm. However, um, uh, it's something that we take very seriously given the potential consequences of um, radiation excess, especially exposure excess. Um, and we take it into account not only in the operating theatre, but definitely in our 
imaging pre and post-operatively and definitely surveillance imaging for patients, Sam, um, in terms of the exposure that they may get um, from the radiation that we subject them to. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're doing longer and longer procedures now and um, um, every now and then there's a case where you have to stop because the radiation exposure is getting too high. That's a very difficult situation to, to be in for yourself and the patient. Um, and so all these strategies that we'll talk about today are looking at ways to try and mitigate not only the risks to ourselves and the staff but also and the patient, but also how can we make the most efficient use of um, radiation as possible. Perhaps a good place to start, Sam, is um, to define or talk about what radiation is. And if you could perhaps give us a, a summary comment in regards to this, that might be helpful to get us off and running. Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, this is uh, obviously we talk about radiation in the medical field, but radiation is obviously something that most people um, have heard of or are aware of. But radiation is basically described as energy or particles that uh, travel through space or other mediums. These can be light, heat, microwaves, radio waves, and obviously used for wireless communications. Um, probably the one you know most people are familiar with is mobile phones. Um, this obviously uses a radiation, uh, radio wave uh, transmission platform to transfer voice and data um, via radio towers. And uh, But this is what we would describe as non-ionizing radiation. So radiation that actually doesn't cause damage to uh, atoms or actually what, what we mean is by ionizing is it causes ionization to atoms themselves and the absorbing matter and i guess that's the sort of main argument against the five the anti-5g movement is it's actually non-ionizing radiation that we're that people are f arguing against um, now this is in contrast obviously to um, ionizing radiation which is the radiation that is uh, used in the uh, medical field and of that, there are various types. Um, most people would have heard of X-rays, um, but there are other types such as gamma rays and alpha rays. And these are the types of radiation that actually cause, essentially the, the way to look at it is it causes change to atoms and tissues themselves. Yeah, fantastic. And um, the our ability to utilize these photons of energy to then give us the relevant information that we need uh, angiographically is what helps us uh, in our practice as vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists for theirs as well. Uh, but as Sam mentioned, the role of ionizing radiation is broad um, across the medical spectrum itself uh, in terms of their role, not only imaging, but not only in diagnostic, but also therapeutic means as well. And so Really, um, as given the significant effect that radiation has, not only from both a uh, diagnostic and therapeutic means, there are there are many ways in which we ascertain the impact or biological effect of radiation, and we typically do these with um, a calculated measure of the energy that 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 is absorbed by the tissue that's being impacted by the radiation itself. But we also take into account the sensitivity of those organs and also the strength of the radiation that they're being subjected to. Uh, this has resulted in the derivation of some terminology uh, that we try and uh, hopefully quantify some of the exposure risks. Uh, but as we go through them, we'll hopefully be able to explain to you some of the limitations that exist. Of the three major measurements when we think about radiation exposure, uh, the ones that come to mind, Sam, are the absorbed dose, the equivalent dose, and the effective dose. And perhaps um, if you could start us off by giving us a, a, an overview on the absorbed dose, it might be helpful in terms of um, getting that message across. Yeah, so I mean, Yogi, I look at a lot of this stuff like, you know, when you study uh, chemistry in year 12 and the night before your uh, HSE exam, you'd go over the uh, periodic table, like all these things, you know, it's, it's very hard to um, uh, keep in the back of your mind. And um, as we sort of approach this from an exam point of view or a study point of view, it's, uh, it's one of those things you, you, you read up on the night before the test. I think um, a lot of this is sort of made a bit confusing by the fact there are so many different names involved. And I think that's probably due to so many players historically um, being involved in radiation, radiation discovery, Rowentgen, 
Becquerel, uh, Curry, and uh, consequently, it's a bit of a minefield uh, to um, navigate. But all just, your best, all your best. Oh, Madam, Madam Curry. So <laughs> basically, but basically, basically, we we look at things as to whether uh, we're looking at radiation either in the air or radiation that it's to the patient. And so the radiation to the patient is either going to be the absorbed dose, uh, the equivalent dose, or the effective dose. Now, the absorbed dose, this is basically the radiation that is dumped on a particular mass. And now, this can be anything, and the um, classic sort of ICRP description is this mass of radiation can be put on anything. It can be put on the patient, it can be put on water, it can be put on air, rock, or people. But when we're actually starting to look at what happens to the patient itself, themselves we're now trying to work out the equivalent dose or the effective dose now the effective dose is probably what people see most often and this is the basically the calculation of the radiation deposited to the whole body and it's basically a composition of radiation also therefore exposed to the tissues or the organs and and the Radiation exposed to the organs is what we call the equivalent dose. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically, the equivalent dose, sorry, the effective dose is made up of all the individual equivalent doses to the patient. Yeah. And look, uh, Sam, I take your analogy of um, the the pre-HSE um, exam cram when it comes to trying to get some of this content in. But um, as Sam mentions, um, the, the equivalent and effective dose... Uh, um, allows us to have a more specific representation of the dose effect on tissues, which by, and the way it's done is with the introduction of a radiation weight factor, um, whilst the effective dose specifically then adds a further weighting to it to allow us to understand the distribution of radiation, the radio sensitivity of various organs. And many of you out there may go, what's the relevance of all of this? And the reality is that not all tissue responds the same um, to radiation. And so you want to be able to adequately um, determine dose limits for particular organ tissues so that um, their exposure is limited. And as such, uh, you're potentially reducing the risk of um, the biological effect of radiation itself. Um, and that's where this, uh, this, and that's why these um, representation of measurements are important to us as proceduralists because it, it directs how much exposure we can put a patient through, but also the exposure that we as practitioners will encounter and also our colleagues in the operating theater across the board. And, this is why radiation safety is important to us. Sam, I guess the other thing I do want to touch on is that whilst these um, various measurements are um, described, it's often mm -hmm. um, the it's often another measurement that's provided to not only our nursing colleagues and radiographers, but across to us as well at the end of a case in terms of exposure. And that's typically the Kerma air product. And so it's not uncommon for a radiographer to say, oh, this case had four gray of radiation or six gray, which is when they get really anxious. Um, and, and particularly in my institution at every two gray, there is a, um, there is a notification to the proceduralist in terms of the amount of um, radiation that's, that um, has been utilized for the examination. Now, the Kerma air product or that numerical value that's given to you is the total amount of radiation used in the examination. But the very important aspect to it is it is not a surrogate for patient doses. What, what Sam mentioned, the effective and equivalent doses are representative of doses, the dose effect on the patient itself whilst the numerical value that is often told to us at the end of the case is just representative of the total amount of radiation. Now... Yogi, I've got a trivia question for you. Go for you. it. Trivia question. Do you know what KERMA stands no. for? No. Hit, hit me. 
Kermit stands for something. So it's an acronym: kinetic energy release per unit of mass. Well, there you go. That, oh, that, yeah. And and I think the, the thing that I would stress to you is the fact that um, that numerical value um, and its impact really depends on the part of the body that's being affected, and because as we talked about, um, various tissues are have varying degrees of radius sensitivity. Um, and hopefully across the four numerical values that we've talked about or measurements, you'll get an appreciation of the complexity that's involved in terms of trying to get your head around what's actually relevant and what's important to the patient. So I think um, uh, just one thing to just clarify, Yogi, is the difference between joules, grays and sieverts. Because again, this comes down to or comes back to the point I was making earlier about the confusion about the nomenclature. So I think joule, probably most people, uh, even those in the public, would understand or have some idea about what a joule is. And you know, obviously, um, we consider joule in terms of how much energy is in food that we consume. But uh, the joule, a joule has a definition, and it's basically the energy needed to lift 100 grams one meter in height. And so then we then get to um, a slightly more complex area where we try and figure out what's the difference between a gray and then a sievert. So then we enter, so then enters the gray. And so a dose of one gray means that one kilogram of matter has absorbed one joule of radiation. And as we said earlier, there are various different types of radiation. You have alpha waves, beta waves, and gamma waves. And the tissue reacts differently to these um, um, uh different types of radiation, i.e. like gamma waves being the hardest and the fastest uh, form of radiation. We use that obviously in, um, when we do, um, you know, MEV scans, spec scans. Um, and uh, so a sievert equals is a gray times the impact factor. And the impact factor is basically the impact of the particular type of radiation being used. So Yogi, uh, given all that, what, what, do you, what are some of the... Um, there are sort of two main categories of biological effects of radiation that we talk about. Could you just run us through what some of those are? Yeah. So, Sam, I think of this as the here and now versus what will potentially happen in the future as a result of exposure. Uh, the here and now is what I would reflect on and what is called uh, the deterministic effects of radiation. So these are the dose-dependent uh, results of radiation exposure that results in cell death. Um, so in particular, the hair follicles, skin, subcutaneous tissues, uh, the lens of the eye. And yep. you get an acute effect when a threshold level of radiation has been exceeded and that dose is higher than um, what is required for injury. The problem being is that there is no absolute threshold and, these can, and this can particularly vary from individuals to individuals. And so, Yogi, would you then, uh, would you call a radiation burn after a long exposure as, uh, within this deterministic character, uh, category? Yeah, the so the inflammation and then the sort of skin fibrotic changes or even the tissue breakdown that can occur is typically in keeping with the deterministic effects of radiation mm -hmm. exposure. Fortunately, the example that Sam describes is something that's very rarely seen in modern practice because of some of the techniques that we utilize. However, we've seen, in my experience, I've only seen this, this described in a textbook, um, but um, you know, we're very mindful of the fact that um, not only is there the risk of skin breakdown or the radiation dermatitis that can occur as a result of mm. big doses of radiation. The second impact or the second biological impact of radiation is the stochastic effects. And um, this is perhaps the more um, brutal aspect of radiation exposure. Uh, it, it is radiation exposure causing DNA damage to a single cell, which then mutates. Um, and the reality of, of this mutation process is, is that it has an all or nothing uh, phenomenon. Um, and the severity of the impact of the mutation is unrelated to dose. Uh, and this mutation can then lead to uh, cancers and heritable um, genetic defects. Mm -hmm. um, now, with 
careful control of radiation exposure, the probability of stochastic effects is probably very low. However, um, there is, um, you know, we, we know that there's a background risk of spontaneous fatal cancer in the community of about 20%. And then taking that into account, the probability of fatal, fatal uh, probability of fatal cancers developing as a result of radiation exposure is about 4% per one CBIT of lifetime dose. And so that risk again is still very small. Um, the added effects of all of this is the latent period from exposure to the subsequent development of a, uh, of a cancer can be drawn out by years. And which is then makes it very difficult to know whether there was a causative effect from the radiation or whether this was as part of the patient's uh, genetic makeup in itself. And so fundamentally um, when we, subject someone to doses of radiation for a procedure, these are also our considerations in terms of the potential impact that we may subject someone to. Sam, as both of us are involved in um, endovascular procedures, um, mm -hmm. we also have to be very mindful of our own exposure to radiation in the operating theater um, and those around us. Um, it may be worthwhile talking to talking about what are the how do we how are we protected um, and what are the sort of levels that we potentially have to be mindful of in terms of exposure and what and if we do exceed them what actually ends up happening to us. So in terms of levels we have to be mindful of Yogi, um, it's uh, I guess it's it's interesting to note that we. Uh, whether you're in medicine, healthcare or not, everyone in the community is exposed to a background level of radiation. And um, in the United States, that's roughly three millisieverts per year. Now, if you're a pilot and uh, fly a lot or uh, you are in uh, work in uh, the aviation injury, that's, that's going to be a lot higher because you obviously expose yourself to a lot more radiation in that uh, sort of line of work. Similarly, in our line of work, we also expose ourselves to more radiation and uh, now if you look very carefully at our logo, you will see that uh, it resembles a radiation safety badge or radiation film badge that basically records um, your skin dose underneath your lid. Now, if that dose were to exceed 20 millisievert per year, average over five years, with no one year exceeding more than 50 millisieverts, then I presume that you or I will get a tap on the shoulder and saying um, uh, maybe you should just be doing clinic for the next uh, few months. Uh, only open operating procedures, Sam. Or only operating. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I don't do any of them. Yet. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, Sam, do you wear one or two badges? So I wear one under my lid and then one on my um, yeah. uh, radiation safety glasses. And so classically one at the collar um, and one under your under your apron to sort of give you an idea of your surface radiation exposure and then also the impact of what um, the lead that you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for our listeners perhaps who um, perhaps don't spend a lot of time within a hybrid theatre environment, um, Sam, do you mind describing to them what your get-up is, what your what your um, what your clothes, your clothing, your you know safety clothing that you wear during a procedure involves, what sort of things you might put on as you get started for your endovascular procedure, apart from scrubs. So um, uh, obviously, uh, lead uh, skirt and uh, apron and collar are quite important. It's also important that the uh, red lead that you're wearing is checked regularly for holes. And usually this is carried out by the hospital radiographer who will uh, periodically basically x-ray the lead gown to see that uh, it's actually um, adequate and maintains its integrity. Underneath the lead gown, I then have my radiation safety badge as we described. And then apart from my surgical mask, and uh, I usually wear uh, radiation safety eyewear, which is basically... Vision wear, but it's impregnated, I believe, with um, uh, some lead particles that uh, help prevent something that we'd be quite concerned about, Yogi, which is uh, developing a cataract in the future from uh, excessive X-ray exposure. 
Now, um, some people uh, wear shin guards, and this is um, basically to prevent excessive exposure to your shins, which uh, do uh, are exposed to radiation basically um, under the table from uh, scatter from the patient. We have a pretty good lead shield, so I, I don't wear that and um, uh, routinely. Um, and then there's a question about whether or not you should be wearing a lead leaded hat, or some people call them a no-brainer. To be honest, I think um, I've sort of heard um, uh, mixed opinions about them. I, I do know some surgeons wear them, but I've heard from various hospital physicists that there's a concern that if your head is tilted back slightly, you can actually create a slot, somewhat of a greenhouse effect within your in your skull due to the lead reflecting the radiation actually back down uh, towards your brain. So I, I, I typically actually don't wear a, uh, a no-brainer. Yeah, I so Sam, I... I... Uh, I do the same, but I also, I routinely wear shin guards, um, which is a so, a source of amusement for any time I walk outside the the operating theatre as people threaten to kick me in the shins just to see how strong the shin guards are. <laughs> but, Not that strong, apparently. <laughs> no, it hurts. <laughs> Please don't kick me. Um, but I think the important point there, Sam, that you raised is about regular surveillance of lead, and um. If you're a practitioner that requ- that needs to wear lead, you should treat your lead with respect. Tossing it onto a chair, putting it on the floor, not hanging it up only increases the risk of that lead fracturing and the inability of it functioning effectively for you. Do you have your own lead or you use the uh, hospital-provided lead? Uh, so a mixture of both, to be honest with you. So there are there are some consultant LEDs in the unit that I work in, but also in acute cases, sometimes I grab what's available to me in front of me and put it on. I'm not sure yep. if that's the same, Sam, with yourself. Uh, uh, at the Northern, where I do most of my um, endovascular procedures, the LED there is it's quite good, to be honest. I, I don't actually have my own, so to speak, but um, the LED provided is actually pretty good quality, so... Yeah, and raises an important point here, Sam, because mm-hmm. um, how does your back feel uh, after a long endovascular procedure with all this gear on? Fine, mate. I'm not weak. <laughs> the reality is that wearing lead for prolonged procedures... Um, People hate it. Yeah. It, it. It's Your back gets sore, and it's not uncommon in our profession that you have vascular surgeons who have a range of uh, back-related ailments, Um from long time, long, long periods of time in theatre, operating either in a slightly slouched position, um, mm. especially with hybrid interventions, it's a it's a significant risk. And also a shout out to our nurses who then have to put up with quite prolonged periods where they wear lead in the operating mm. theatre. Um, it's you know often when we do hybrid procedures. We as surgeons may take the mercy of not wearing lead at the start of the case, unscrubbing and then putting it on and re-scrubbing whilst most of our uh, scrub staff will probably start the procedure with their lead on just given the mm. the need to maintain sterility and also continuity through the procedure. So with great respect, we have a, you know we are very grateful for what they do for us, uh, especially to ensure that our procedures get done. Uh, but it also means that as colleagues, we really do need to look after them and make sure we treat yeah. Man, with immense amount of respect, um, especially when it comes to the combined procedures that we go through. Um, and so, Sam, um, just a follow-up point on, on something you raised. Um, so the reason I wear shin guards, apart from everything else, is the traditional layout of an endovascular setup uh, is such that the source of the radiation is below the table and the detector, mm-hmm. as, a, as the photons pass through the patient, and the pathology is identified or the angiogram is demonstrated is above the patient. And so the greatest source of radiation, apart from the subsequent scatter that arises, is actually from the source itself, which is under the table. And whilst lead skirting, um, for the most part, allows you to achieve that, there are going to be times during the procedure where you may have an angle, which you can't prepare for in terms of the radiation shooting off in directions that aren't going to be um, uh, dealt with by the lead shields. Um, and as such, um, in my mind, makes it important that you're, you're appropriately covered for your long bones. But also, can I, can I also stress the point that if you've got a colleague, specifically an anesthetic colleague who's fiddling with the tube or putting in a cannula during the case, they might get 
uh, that you might get under the drape, they're often the closest to the radiation source. So out of respect, stop your screening. Yeah. Um, because there's nothing worse than subjecting them to unnecessary radiation than they need. Uh, and similarly, if, if the radiographer has just popped around to make sure that the lead skirt isn't in the way of the, of the source, uh, I think it's nothing more than disrespect by screening whilst they're doing that. So yep. uh, a bit of common sense and courtesy in the operating theater for them is absolutely vital um, and as important. And hopefully this is a good segue on to um, a touch, touching on Alara principles within the operating theater. Um, Sam, tell us a little bit about some of the Alara principles that are out there and what does Alara stand for? So uh, the Alara principle is basically um, it's a guiding principle of safety um, for well radiation safety and it stands for as low as reasonably achievable. Um, and for me, it's it's sort of a constant reminder to be always looking at ways to uh, reduce your radiation exposure. And you're looking at three factors: time, the time you've actually got your foot on the pedal. Um, uh, minimizing the distance between the patient and the source and the detector and looking at shielding. So for the first thing, um, you know, we're looking at when we use radiation is always, you know, first of all, the operator should have a radiation safety license. And um, I know you and I, both, Yogi, have both uh, completed the appropriate uh, course to obtain that. But the operator is the one who's got their foot on the pedal and is also quite cognizant of, you know, looking at the screen, so actually making use of the time they've got their foot on the pedal. Can I ask you, Sam, just mm. before you crack on, before you put your foot on the pedal, do you look around the room and ask whether everyone's got lead on? Uh, yeah, and and again, your radiographer here is quite helpful. Um, usually they actually will check. They're in the control mm. room. They won't actually uh, switch on the X-ray until uh, they've actually made sure that there's been like a verbal confirmation, almost like it's part of your timeout procedure that uh, everyone's got let on yeah and and in my practice before i put my foot on the pedal i just do a 360 pan around the room and i say has everyone got let on and then i say x-ray on and then we start the procedure yeah then you're looking at the um the dosage so um are you we use the uh, uh phillips uh, azurion at the northern and because you're fancy you're fancy but, but on the machine there's a there's a there's a control there to actually increase and decrease the amount of uh, radiation emitted and it's almost always on the lowest setting uh, you know you're reducing your frame rates um, uh, uh, appropriately when you're doing DSA you're limiting the number of DSAs uh, where appropriate I mean you, you, quite often you can actually get the information you need like okay is the SFA patent you can probably just do a fluoro with contrast to actually see that at the time and of course using collimation and filters as much as possible in terms of some other things with time, you know, obviously uh, the machine gives you a five-minute warning after each five-minute cycle, and that has to be manually disabled. Um, was there something you were going to add there, Yogi? Yeah, look, I, I, I think, uh, like you said, Sam, as the proceduralist, you're con uh, cogniz cognizant of the impact that um, the radiation exposure has to your colleagues within the room. So, um and I've been very fortunate to work with proceduralists who are uh, absolutely adamant in terms of how this is done. So um, I think when you're using fluoroscopy, it really should not be activated unless you're looking at the screen. There's yep. no point screening if no one's looking at the screen. Yep. Um, I think within the operating theater, only the people essential to allow you the, for the procedure to be done should be in the room. So if you do not need three members of staff standing behind you, providing commentary don't be there because there's nothing worse than unnecessary Absolutely. Uh, radiation exposure. The equipment should be serviced and inspected regularly. And most hospital services will have a medical physicist who's not only involved in that process, but also keeps an eye on the doses that are being reported yep. and also providing feedback to the relevant proceduralists. Um, I think a good relationship with your radio radiographer is important because not only are they able to optimize the images that you get, but also reduce your radiation exposure. Um, there's, you know, whilst we could all operate with elevated frame rates and um, juice, juice uh, turned up. 
Yeah, that's right. Can we, can we have a bit more juice? Can yeah. we have a bit more juice? Um, the reality is that they're there as a stop keep to try and prevent some of this from happening. You've got to listen to them and take their advice on board. So uh, at the end of the day, you need to perform this procedure safely with as much um, information as you can gather without uh, actually sizzling the person, the patient, and your colleagues. Yep. Um, no one's going to be grateful for uh, a burnt crisp at the end of the day. No. If, um, uh, especially if you think you've got a technical um, success from that. Collimation is vital. And a good example where I use collimation very aggressively is as I'm coming down the SFA for a peripheral angio, but also when I'm cannulating the contralateral gate for an EVA. For your hunting reduce, tibials, you mean? Uh, I, I'm not the tibial hunter. Yeah. But um, but um, I, I think when it comes to cannulation of EVA limbs, it's a great example of where you can really close down the field that you're interrogating. Um, and at that point, potentially you may need a bit of magnification or angle, um, but trying to limit though, limit the amount of magnification and angle uh, through the procedure is important to protect your colleagues. Uh, uh, look, Yogi, to be honest, I've usually cannulated the gate before the radiographer has a chance to collimate. So good, but I take your point on board. You know, uh, <laughs> Sam's there cannulating with a pigtail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, timing, I think, is absolutely important in terms of audible reminders of how much exposure. And Sam, just to touch on the point that you made, fluoroscopy really does have significantly more radiation than just, uh, sorry, um, DSA has typically more fluoroscopy, uh, yep. typically more radiation than fluoroscopy alone. And it's in the benchmark of about 10 times as much. So less DSA uh, to try and get your procedure done is important. Yep. Um, the distance between the patient and the tube is also vital. Um, keeping the intensifier closer to the patient, trying to do scatter is usually pretty important as well. Um, and as we mentioned before, trying to avoid significant angles, um, you know, severe degrees of radiation. So, so sorry, severe degrees of um, angulation. There are going to be circumstances when you need it, but um, steep LAO, REO comes with more radiation. That's just the simple state of affairs. Um, the steeper angulation that you try and achieve increases the length of the radiation path and also it increases the thickness of the tissue penetration as well. Now, um, I, Sam, I use um, a lead shield um, that's suspended from the roof in front of me uh, during the procedure. I presume you do that as well. Yeah. Um, and you also use the lead skirts that you talked about, but also mm -hmm. uh, occasionally have the little table side lead. I also have the table side lead shields up if it's feasible. Uh, however, not off. Sometimes it does get in the way. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the lead that we wear, um, most of us typically, um, it's a balancing act between how much lead we wear versus how much weight the lead actually ends up putting on our, on us as we do the procedure. Um, Sam, it, you know, um, a lead apron uh, and uh, skirt will typically. Um, be about eight to 10 kilos of extra weight for, for a medium to large human. Yep. Um, and so, um, but the degree of lead that we put on the thickness also attenuates the amount of dose that you end up being exposed to as well. So that's why it's fundamental. Yep. The final thing to say is if you're going to do fluoroscopy, you better damn have good tibial hunter skills. Otherwise <laughs> don't embark on it because <laughs> there's nothing worse than doing a procedure where you're not technically proficient to do it. Um, yep. It just, it's an unnecessary exposure to everyone there. I think future operating theater environments should have light real time dosometer reading. So I worked in the center, which um, there was basically everyone wore a, a real time dosometer and it gave you a, approximate value depending on how close you were to the um to the source yeah, that's, uh, where was that that's pretty interesting yeah so i think the old phillips machines had um uh well, so much was, yeah so it, it wasn't it, it didn't give you a numerical value but mm. it gave you on a bar scale how many bars um, right. exposure you were getting and so it could tell you um whether you were um 
how close you were, because as you know, radiation exposure is inversely proportional to distance squared. So the further you're away, the exposure is reduced. So you yep. want to take that meter away to two meters away to try and reduce that exposure for the procedure. And I think the other thing I would stress is to our anesthetic colleagues, um, or both the, so being in a room where an endovascular procedure is being performed, it is absolutely vital that you're wearing lead. Standing behind a lead screen is not equivalent. And me personally, I will not screen in the room unless you're wearing lead. Um, and so it's my duty to look after you. But at the same time, I think it's important that people respect um, the rules of radiation safety just so that we're all looking out for each other as we embark on doing the best we can for patients, especially most of our patient cohort who have difficult pathology to look after. Nothing worse when someone walks in and says, stop screening. Well, <laughs> especially when you're especially when you're midway hunting your tibia and you're stuck. You got, got your own four wire in the foot here. Yeah, yeah. I'm, Loop pedal reconstruction. I'm That's what Sam Farrader. <laughs> I'm at RXT 1.5. No, Sam is stopping. Sam is stopping at that point because he doesn't want to unnecessarily irradiate someone without lead on. All right, Yogi, I'm going to pose a scenario scenario to you, as I often do. You've got a hundred and let's say a 150 kilogram patient who requires an SMA stint. What are some of the things you do before the procedure and in the procedure to reduce uh, your radiation exposure, patient's exposure, and everyone else's radiation exposure? I guess the first thing I'd say, Sam, is if there are 150 kilo patient with supposed chronic mesenteric ischemia, um, the pathology and the patient morphology probably doesn't add up and I'd look for an alternate. Well, let's just say there's an acute and chronic uh, component or uh, uh, just go with it, Yogi. Just stop poking holes in this scenario. <laughs> they clearly are well-nourished. That's the point I make. Yeah. But I guess, Sam, the point you raise here is the potential risk not only to the patient but to colleagues around. Well, why, why have I said this particular – why have I said – Big patient, SMA, just for our uh, audience. Yeah. So the so first and foremost, the first consideration is ensuring that the equipment can tolerate the weight of the patient on the bed. And most beds could tolerate up to 180 kilos. So making sure the equipment's appropriate. The, but the bigger issue here is that in larger patients, especially um, you're going to expose not only the proceduralist, but also the patient to elevated doses of radiation to get the um, information you require um, and this is often with a significant amount of challenge this may require severe degrees of angulation and especially with the SMA coming almost at a at, at a midday or 12 o'clock position on the clock face off the aorta this may require almost um, a true lateral uh, position of the c-arm to achieve uh, appropriate demonstration of the SMA itself um, the second issue is the potential need not only in uh, elevated frame rate, so this, uh, this also increases the exposure. And technically, this can be challenging. And so this, as a third factor, this increases the period of time of exposure in the procedure itself. So pre-procedurally, if you do think that this is the correct diagnosis for the patient, one thing you could do pre-procedurally is look at some anatomical landmarks to try and guide you to try and reduce the amount of x-rays that you may need to perform um, to get to a position where you can start interrogating the SMA. The second consideration is your approach, whether you're coming from the groin or the arm, and particularly with the SMA, often it's easier coming from an arm approach just with the angle that the um, SMA comes off the aorta, and similarly the same argument can be made of the celiac as well. Um, the third consideration is uh, the making sure that uh, the equipment has been serviced and that um, scatter is reduced to, the, to as little as you can, especially uh, making sure there's no faults within the machine. Um, and, and finally, of, of course, talking through the procedure prior to kicking off um, for the procedure with your colleagues in particular, the radiographers, setting some benchmarks, being clear as to what timeframes you're willing to expose the patient to, 
is it possible to stage the intervention and with an SMA stent? That seems to be unlikely, but there are certain interventions where you may want to stage and bring the patient back. In the procedure, I would take into account some of the discussion that we've had earlier, Sam, mm -hmm. in terms of screening um, etiquette and hygiene, um, but also being very mindful of some of the benchmarks, especially interoperatively in terms of dose exposure and stopping appropriately as you go along. Um, and I think there, I, I think together with the sort of preoperative considerations as well as the interoperative stuff, um, you do the best for your patients, but not only that, but you do the best to look after your colleagues in terms of avoiding um, huge radiation exposure. Good one. What do you, um, what do you think about uh, fusion technology? Oh, look, I think the future of our practice will incorporate advances in imaging and fusion is definitely a great example of where technology is going. Uh, Sam's essentially describing the integration of a patient CT with real-time imaging, and that can occur with the, um, with the CT superimposed. Um, but also there are variations to that where they have um, uh, computer-generated imaging of the visceral segments and aorta um, so that you are able to cannulate vessels without needing to do um, uh, contrast runs or uh, DSAs. Um, and, and I think whilst um, certain units have it um, in their practice, it's not um, routine around, our, around Australia. Um, and though I think in the next decade and potentially into the future, probably towards, you know, in our lifetime, we will continue to see those advancements, Sam. Yep. I think the, the other thing, Sam, that you might have seen is the exoskeleton lead, um, which is the free, uh, gravity-free lead, which yeah. is suspended, yeah. um, which you and I may have the potential of, you know, um, having the pleasure of wearing into the future. But also, what, what about robotic vascular surgery, Sam? We may not have to even have to be in the room. I can't wait. Can't wait to be you'd on the be, beach somewhere hunting to be. <laughs> Mate, you'd be like a drone fighter. You know? You'd be like, you'd be sitting at your control pad just... I'll be trying to do two cases at once, Yogi. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not that efficient. I... Uh, I probably don't think that fast, Sam. <laughs> yeah, nine <laughs> words per minute was the limit, I think. Um, but, but, you know, I think ra radiation safety is absolutely fundamental. It's, I think my belief is that as the proceduralist, you're ultimately responsible not only for your team but for the patient and you need to do everything you can to look after them, especially when it comes to exposure in the operating theater. Everything you can do to reduce that exposure is vital. And Sam, I'm sure that the nurses and radiographers that work with you take you on your face value for everything you do to look after them. And so whatever we can do to instill that trust is important for them. Very true. And uh, look, I, I think we could talk about radiation safety um, endlessly, but I think uh, hopefully today has been an interesting introduction to this area um, and it provides some idea in terms of some of the challenges that we embark on as proceduralists within the, the field of endovascular surgery. Thanks, Yogi. Another good one. Um, but uh, plenty more still to come in the retrograde approach. Yeah, look, we've got some good good. Uh, guests upcoming in the in the near future and can i just say we really do appreciate um the commentary and feedback that we get except the one star gate we're not particularly <laughs> impressed with our one star rating from whoever's out there um so um well, so it, no, say, nine, nine five star reviews and one one star review there's someone out there <laughs> just giving us a one. but look we take all constructive feedback on board but um was it stargate the name of a tv show yogi that's right so we'll call this the one star gate yeah. Um, because um, if if you're out there and you're genuinely dis we don't like the banter between Sam and myself, which I can't understand why, because right. Sam is the tibial hunter. Um, maybe maybe it's because I called you the tibial hunter. You are the tibial hunter, Sam. I think Doctor the Dalkatib was uh, feels like he owns that title. <laughs> no, uh, no. Oh, look. Um, 
we genuinely appreciate um, people um, listening in and we appreciate our colleagues also providing us with um, day-to-day feedback in terms of the podcast. And so um, we'd be more than encouraged to hear from anyone uh, in terms of how we can make our content better and hopefully for our trainees, it's something that uh, they can use in their pre-examination study. Yogi, see you next week. Thanks, Sam. Hopefully those tibials are keeping you out of trouble.